Happy Fourth. Kids, Pastor Rob uh, hopes you have a wonderful Tuesday evening on July the 4th. Uh, just be careful with your sparklers. Don't hold them near your eyes. I love you guys. I want you to be safe. So have a great time. And I also want to just commend each and every one of you for making space uh, this Sunday morning on July 4th weekend to come and, and recognize that God's worthy of our time and attention. I think that is just so important. Uh, we could be off on a boat somewhere. We could be doing something else. Nothing wrong with any of that. Uh, but the God of the universe is worthy of our worship. So I commend you for that. Let's open up the scriptures. Psalm 5, living beyond the muck. Now, I want to say this. If everyone likes you, you have a serious problem. <laughs> psychologist uh, says, one psychologist says that the ratio of people liking you to not liking you, if 85% if of people you meet like you, you're doing pretty well for yourself. However, if more than 85% of people you meet like you, well, now you have a problem on your hands. It means that you have become a pushover, a people pleaser. Let's just be honest. Not everyone is going to like you. Now, when we use this expression here, if everyone likes you, you, you have a serious problem. I'm thinking about it in a little bit different terms. I'm thinking about it in terms of what the Bible says about how people might view you if you follow Jesus and if you hold to deeply held biblical values. You know, the Bible tells us that two things will be true of you if you walk with Jesus with respect to enemies. Number one, you're going to have enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, when they revile you. Now, you notice the word that he uses there. He says, when, not if. And the second thing that the Bible tells us with respect to enemies is that you can have enemies for the wrong reasons, and you can have enemies for the right reasons. What are the wrong reasons? Well, let me give you a couple of wrong reasons. One wrong reason is you cannot play nice in the sandbox with the other kids. You don't share your toys. Another wrong reason is being a hypocrite. Rules for thee and not for me. Or posturing yourself in such a way where you project to other people that you are morally superior to them. I want to suggest this morning that if you have enemies for those reasons, well, it's because you're an enemy. The right reason, according to the Bible, is holding to your deeply held biblical convictions. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus clarifies on this point. He says, when others are persecuting you, or, or blessed are those who are persecuted, and here's what he adds to that statement, for righteousness's sake. And what does it mean to be righteous? Well, it means to live consistently with your biblical values. Okay, here's a question for you. Do you, like, love to think that someone out there doesn't like you? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I want to be liked by people. 
I really want them to like me. When I find out that someone doesn't like me or, or they're going out of their way to make my life just a little bit more miserable, that doesn't rest well with me. So what do you do with that? Well, we have Psalm 5. And in Psalm 5, David is praying about the muckiness of having enemies. And, and he shows us how we can think rightly with respect to enemies. So let me read the psalm to you. Psalm 5. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgression, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So first, as we make our way through this psalm, Let's acknowledge what prayer is. This whole idea of religion, following God, uh, we say often that it's about relationship. That's what God is concerned with. He wants to be in right relationship with you. So if it's about relationship, then prayer is about communication. And we all know that it's very important to establish good communication with people. Oftentimes, when I'm walking a couple through premarital counseling, I like to read a quote to them, and it says that in marriage, nothing is easier than talking, and nothing is harder than communicating. There's a big difference. Sometimes Katie tells me I talk too much. Sometimes she tells me I don't communicate enough. In fact, as I think about communication, I want to suggest to you this morning that there are five levels of communication. And as you move through the levels, you move from not really saying anything about yourself to telling someone fully about yourself. So look at the first level, cliche. That's the last like grocery store interaction you had when someone came up to you and you said, oh boy, hasn't the weather, weather been incredible lately? Did you tell them anything about yourself? No you just kind of engaged in cliche. 
The second is reporting facts. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that if communication in marriage gets to this level and you can't go any deeper, you are now on life support in marriage. There's a famous country western song out there right now. The, t- the name of the song is Either Way by Chris Stapleton. And he has this line in the song where he says, the only time we ever talk is when the monthly bills are due. Ooh, that's rough. Third level, opinions. This is what I think about something. Fourth level, emotions. Now, a lot of people believe that if I get to this emotional level, well, then I have achieved maximal communication. I share what I feel about things. But I suggest to you this morning there's a fifth level, and that's transparency. That's where I am fully open with another person because I fully trust them with myself. So when you think about marriage, and now we think about prayer, in both respects, transparency is the goal when it comes to communication. And as you read David's prayers through the Psalms, you'll notice time and again that David lays it all on the line with God. He's transparent with God. We see this in three different ways with the prayer in verses one through three, and we can drive three forms of application from that. What is prayer? Well, sometimes prayer is groaning. David says, consider my groaning. Now, what is groaning? Well, in the Hebrew, that term means murmuring. You're so distraught over something. In this case, David's so distraught over his enemies that he isn't even expressing intelligible words. You ever been there before? I mean, your mind is a jumbled mess, and you're like, God, I need you to be like chat GPT or Bard. I need you to take my little bit and make a lot out of it. Prayer is also personal. David calls God my king and my God. Interestingly enough, this is the first time in the Psalms that God is referenced as king. And so here you have the king of Israel referring to God as the king. David has come to the recognition that as an earthly king, he has limitations. And so if he's having problems, he needs to bring his problems to the eternal king who can help him. Thirdly, I want us to see that prayer is expectant. Look at how the New English translation translates verse 3. It says, Lord, in the morning you will hear me. In the morning I will present my case to you and then wait expectantly for an answer. Are you seeing how David views prayer as we're making our way through the Psalms? It's not some like last ditch effort. It's not some long shot when David prays. He's praying because he expects God to do something in prayer. Now, we will greatly change our mind if we come to this understanding. Last couple of weeks, we've been looking at anxiety, criticism. This week, we're looking at enemies. And our temptation with respect to prayer is to plan before I pray, 
to confront my critics before I pray. And now in the case of enemies, I might want to fight back before I pray. But here's the truth about prayer. You will engage in real prayer when you become convinced there is a real God listening. So David knows this God. And you'll notice quite often as he prays to this God, he speaks into the character of this God. And in this psalm, he acknowledges two dimensions, two aspects of God's character, namely God's holiness and God's love. So let's take a look at both of those aspects, holiness. Now, holiness, I would suggest to you, is that God's position on evil is unwavering. His position on evil is not subject to change. He doesn't change his mind along the way as to what he determines to be evil or what he thinks is right and wrong. It remains consistent. Now, in David's day, that was not the case with the local deities around them. In fact, these local deities were often no different than people. If you got them mad, they reacted with vengeance. Uh, They could manipulate you, lie to you, even cheat if they wanted to get something in a personally expedient way. In fact, the only thing that distinguished one of these local deities from humans is that they had a lot of power and they lived forever. As you look at the scriptures, the God of the Bible is not like that. He's unchanging. He's consistent. And you can derive a lot of comfort from this aspect of God's character, especially if you have enemies. Why? Because you know that God's not going to turn on you or change your mind, his mind with respect to them. Now, David tells us six things about God's response to evil in these verses. The first thing he says is that God does not delight in sin. So he never changes his standard. He never even laughs at things, even if it's told in a funny manner when it comes to evil or sin or anything like that. Secondly, evil may not dwell with God. Another way to translate that is evil can't take up temporary residence with God. In other words, God doesn't have a spare room in his house where evil sometimes comes and visits and dwells with him. Thirdly, God will not tolerate the arrogant. What is the Bible's position on pride? Well, it says God doesn't like it. He opposes the proud. And why is pride such a negative aspect in our world? Well, I like to say it like this. Pride makes you do stupid things. It really does. Why? Because you're no longer living in line with reality. You think that you can control the universe. You have no control over the universe. God has complete control over the universe. Fourthly, God hates those who do evil. God destroys liars. God abhors murderers and deceivers. Now here's what's happening with our Western ears as we read and hear this from Psalm 5. We start thinking to ourselves, oh boy, 
Like this God that's being described in Psalm 5, like he, he kind of sounds like a condemning, harsh, overbearing figure. I have to tell you, as a pastor, um, not a hundred times, a thousand times, I've been asked a question that goes something like this. How is it that the God of the Bible can be both loving but also filled with wrath and anger at the same time? Have you ever thought that before? You ever asked that question? It's a very Western question to ask of the text. And behind that is this thought process where we're thinking, well, if he's loving and he's perfect, shouldn't he forgive and accept everyone? Shouldn't he never be angry about anything? Well, I respond to that in two ways. My first response to that is, if God never got angry about anything, well, then he wouldn't be a loving God. We have to kind of distinguish here that love and anger are not at odds with one another. Let me demonstrate that for you. If someone abuses your child, how would you feel about it? What kind of emotional response would that invoke? And let me follow that up with a question. Should you be viewed as condemning and judgmental and overbearing if you got angry that someone intentionally hurt your child? Of course, the answer is no. You're being a good parent. You love your child. You are acting and reacting on their behalf. And if you didn't act or react when someone is hurting them, then your child may conclude, you don't love me. So God is consistent with his character. And this is my second response to that question. We are inconsistent when it comes to evil. You see, we, I want to suggest, suffer from what I call the spiritual Dunning-Kruger effect. Now, if you don't know what the Dunning-Kruger effect is, there's a really interesting TED Talk out there. The title of the TED Talk is, Why Incompetent People Think They're Amazing. It's kind of true, right? So what they've discovered through psychological research is that we are not good at evaluating ourselves accurately. If anything, we overestimate our abilities with respect to how well we are performing at one thing or another, and that's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. We judge ourselves better than others to a degree that violates the laws of math. There's a couple of examples of this, a couple of studies. One study, they were doing research on software engineers at a couple of companies. So one company, 32% of the software engineers, another, percent, another company, 42% of the software engineers, perceived themselves to be in the upper 5% of both uh, most excellent workers in the workplace. Now, you do the math there. Does 42% fit into 5%? No. And in case you're thinking that these software engineers are a bunch of arrogant people, 
88% of drivers believe that they are above average drivers on the road. Above average, you remember what that meant in school? That was like a B in class. That was like, you got like upper 15%. So now we're trying to cram 90% into 15%. It turns out with this Dunning-Kruger effect that on average, people tend to rate themselves better than most in cross disciplines, whether it has to do with how I manage my finances, how I help other people, my health, my leadership skills. And all along the way in the Bible, the Bible's been saying, you do this morally too. 90% of us think we're in the top 5% with respect to others in our good deeds and our moral behavior. Now, in Romans 3, Paul is building an argument, and he actually quotes Psalm 5, and he quotes other passages of Scripture to expose us to our real moral standing before God. And he builds the argument to Romans 3.23, where he says, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you hear what he's saying there? If it's a pass-fail scenario with, with my morality, my moral position before God, 100% of us fail. That's what the word all means. It's not most people. It's all people. So, if that's true, how is it that David is writing Psalm 5, and he's isolating this group that he's calling the wicked, and he's talking about this group, and he's saying, well, these people, they lie, and God hates that, and they're murderers, and God hates that. Is David the pot calling the kettle black right now? Do you know anything about his life? If you don't read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, notice that sometimes David lied to get what he wanted. You'll also read this horrendous account where he engages in adultery. And in order to cover up the adultery, he finds that the, 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 the woman's husband is one of his soldiers. So he sends the soldier into the front line so that the guy gets killed. Complicit in murder. Is David self-deceived? Is, is David a hypocrite? Does David have the spiritual Dunning-Kruger effect himself? Well, the answer we find to this dilemma is in verse 7. Look at what David says in verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So David, as he approaches God, he's not entering into God's temple because of his goodness. It's not because he's in the moral 5% or 1% even. No, it's through the abundance of your steadfast love. It's because of God's goodness. Now that word, steadfast love, in Hebrew is one word. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And let me get this straight with you. When you say that word, you have to get the in it. Chesed. Chesed. Now translators 
live with attention when they're seeking to bring a concept from one language into another language. Sometimes when you move a word from this language to that language, it just doesn't quite travel well. Uh, one example I heard of this was a Bible translator was trying to convey the idea of Jesus being the sacrificial Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this particular culture, they've never seen a lamb before. So what do you do? How do you help them to picture this sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world? Well, you try to find another animal that maybe they can understand, relate to. So this translator, he picks the llama. Now imagine this, Christ is the llama who takes away the sins of the world. Is that a good carryover? Well, sheep, lambs, they're pretty pure, innocent little animals. They're cute and cuddly, like shepherds, like form relationships with these animals. When Jesus is called the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, you get this idea of a savior who is spotless and pure and innocent. Llamas, on the other hand, are cranky, and they bite people, and they spit on people. Do you want Jesus to be thought of as the llama who takes away the sins of the world? Of course you don't. Not a good translation. Well, translators with this word chesed, they face a similar dilemma. You might notice in your Old Testament that all kinds of different words are being used to translate this word kindness, loyal love, loving kindness, steadfast love. Uh, they're using these different phrases and words because this particular word captures so much about who God is within one word. I love how Carolyn Custis James in her commentary, The Gospel of Ruth, describes this word. She says, chesed is driven not by duty or legal obligation, but by bone-deep commitment, a loyal, selfless love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has a right to expect or ask of them. They have the freedom to act or to walk away without the slightest injury to their reputation yet they willingly pour themselves out for the good of someone else. It's actually the kind of love we find most fully expressed in Jesus. In a nutshell, hesed is the gospel lived out. Why is David different than the enemies? Because he has received God's hesed. He knows God's character. And David derives comfort from this God. He knows this God is holy. In one respect, God is unwavering when it comes to evil. And that gives us a lot of comfort because he's not going to turn a blind eye. He's not going to have just a two-tiered justice system where some get justice and some don't. And he's also a God of love. Despite my sin, God hotly pursues me with his grace and his mercy. Once again, I think of Tim Keller's words 
where he says that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And if I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope, then it means that in prayer, I can come to God with all of my mucky mess. And David, of course, his mucky mess today is his enemies. So he has three prayer requests. And this really serves as the application from this psalm. Let's look at the first prayer request. Verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. Now this application is about as straightforward as it gets. Don't get down to their level. Don't become like them. Lord, as I am dealing with this enemy, I don't want spite to be my fuel. I want your love to be my fuel. My parents, early on in their ministry, if you don't know my family and my background, my dad has been a pastor my whole life. He's been in ministry for over 35 years, something like that. Early on in ministry in the 80s, they had a neighbor across the street who did not like them at all. Uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it's not easy. And it's not always easy, too, because sometimes someone doesn't like you, and you don't even know why they don't like you. They just don't like you. So what do you do about that? Well, you pray. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Of course, my parents are praying something along these lines, and, and what emerges while they're praying for their enemy is they come to find out that this particular neighbor, this family, has fallen on economic hard times. Uh, perhaps one of them lost a job, something along those lines. They can't meet the bills. They're barely able to put food on the table. So they're praying for their enemy, and the Lord puts it on their heart. I want you to take $500, stuff it in an envelope, don't leave a note, don't put your name on it, just put it in their mailbox and move on. Now, they have three boys at this time who eat all day, every day. My dad's barely making any money. Uh, $500 back in the 80s, that's when this is, is a lot of money. Sometimes when you pray that prayer, God will ask you to disadvantage yourself for the sake of your enemy. That's hard, but that's exactly what Jesus did for us. The other prayer request, verses 9 and 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Once again, the language is intensifying for my Western ear. Let me unpack this for you a little bit. Notice first that David is most personally affected by the fact that these people are defaming the reputation of God. 
Here's the deal with enemies. For too many of us, we're mad and we're reactionary and we're fighting back because they did something to me. And I don't like that. And I don't like people talking badly about me. And, and I live in a world that if someone hits me, I hit them harder. But David is more passionate about God's name than he is about his own name. If you're mad because they did something to you, you need to search your soul. But if you're mad because you love God, that's a different story. I also want you to see that this justice that he's praying for, make them bear their guilt, let them fall by their own counsels, is proportionate justice. David's not praying, God, pulverize them as dust into the ground, you know, hit them with 10 pounds of forth for their five pounds of evil behavior. He wants proportionate justice. I'm telling you, if you want to take this praying for your enemy thing to the next level, pray like Jesus. Luke chapter 23, verse 24, on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do. Pray not that God would get even with the enemy, but that God would change the enemy's heart. In just a minute, we're about to take communion together, and we're going to read a script as we do this. And this script reflects the heart of Jesus in communion. It says, Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table for he is the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Third prayer request, verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. That word refuge is one of the most important words in all the Psalms. You'll see it occur multiple times as you're reading through the Psalms. What is refuge? Well, refuge is my place of last resort. Refuge is that place where I run, where I'm totally scared out of my mind, where I don't know what to do with my situation. That's where I go. I believe, as a Christian, we all need to develop what I call a refugeology. That's where I begin to trust God implicitly. That's where God is my first place I go, and he's the last place I go. I've been a pastor going on over 15 years now. And I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years, and sometimes within those conversations, I hear people's plans for their worst-case scenario. You know, like when things get really bad, when the bottom falls out in society, and you're like, what am I going to do about this if everything just kind of goes to chaos? Now, some people 
their approach to their worst case scenario is they find precious metals and they like bury them in holes in the ground and stuff them in their house. Other people are like, well, you know, I don't know if that's a great idea because who's going to want gold when you need food? So I'm getting cans of beans and I'm burying those cans of beans all over the place. Now, other people, they're just a little more, you know, vigilant, let's say, and they develop and build up an arsenal for themselves. Now that, I want to suggest, may or may not be a form of our refugeology. That's my worst case scenario plan. Where do I go when the bottom falls out? Well, David says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. So things get really bad. Maybe you have the protein in the cans of beans, but is a can of beans going to bring any joy into your heart? Is a can of beans going to stop an evil actor? I don't care how many guns you build up. At some point, there ain't enough guns in the world to protect you. David is saying that God is that source of protection who even when you're experiencing the worst, you can simultaneously experience joy in him. He's that one who, no matter what worst case scenario you can envision, I don't care how gory it gets, how big it gets in your mind, he's more powerful than any worst case scenario you can think of. So what do we take away from this psalm? Guess what? In Jesus, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope for. And this God can preserve you, protect you, be your refuge in the midst of anything. Let's pray. As we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to read a prayer from St. Augustine of Hippo. It's titled, Late Have I Loved You. Late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. You were within me while I have gone outside to seek you. Unlovely myself, I rushed towards all those lovely things you had made, and always you were with me, and I was not with you. All these beauties kept me far from you, although they would not have existed at all unless they had, been, had their being in you. You called. You cried. You shattered my deafness. You sparkled. You blazed. You drove away my blindness. You shed your fragrance, and I drew in my breath, and I pant for you. I tasted, and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me. And now I burn with longing for your peace. Amen.